It's been a busy seven days in the independent leagues of baseball, and we're going to break it all down here on this 31st episode of the Indie Ball Report podcast. Alright guys, we're back again. Episode number 31 of the Indie Ball Report podcast, similar to the Ohio State University. We are the premier one, or at least I like to think so. Anywho, we got a lot to cover today and only one guy to cover it. Let's give you a rundown of what we're going to be covering and how long it will go on for. We're going to shoot for a 40-minute show, as our usual. Hopefully not have to do any more two-parters like we had to do last week. And we're going to be talking about the playoffs in the Atlantic League. we got a lot of news in the Can-Am League that's kind of off-the-field stuff, uh, mainly pertaining to the expansion that's rumored to be taking place and all but confirmed to be taking place now. Uh, the Boulders possibly departing, as well as an update regarding Ottawa. And then we have a new team alert with uh, the Henderson Hoos Western Association. We'll be talking about them as well. And then we're going to be going over a little bit of uh, general housekeeping news uh, involving Car Shield Field and attendance across the independent leagues. That's what's on the agenda for today, so without further ado, let's jump right into the news. Playoffs start in the Atlantic League this past Tuesday, the 24th, and by and large, it's been, it's been a good series so far. Uh, Long Island defeated High Point 3 nothing, so that did go against our prediction. We thought for certain that was going to be a five-game set, and instead now it's turned out to be a three-game set. Although most games were close, uh, two of them were one-run games. High Point answered back late in each of those games to kind of take the lead or tie it up, and then it was just a little bit too much for, from Long Island for High Point to match up with. Robinson hit the one home run. And that put them up and to stay up in game one. Game two was a was a pretty solid blowout of all sorts of proportions there. Long Island kind of ran away with that one in high point. And then game three last night, it was a very close contest. Going into the ninth, it was three to one. It became three to two. But in the end, high point did not have the muscle to be able to match Long Island. Still though, a tremendous season from Jamie Keefe and company. They've proven that just because you're first year does not mean you're out of it. Uh, kind of diving deeper, though, into that series, the main takeaways I take from it, the bullpen from High Point was, for the most part, on point. They managed to do their job. They gave up very little, and they took an awful lot. It was a pretty dominant performance from the High Point pen. Two earned runs in seven innings. Long Island's numbers, though, were just over 15 innings pitch for them. And they allowed about six hits, three earned runs. They struck out over 17, like I was saying. By every metric, they were they were pretty good. And really, it was Joey Oreo who had the one kind of bad outing there, where he where his ERA jacked up just because he didn't get the total inning pitch. So that does go against him a bit. But by and large, the bullpens on each side were very good. Starters. Hung in there for the most part. I mean, look at game three. Van Meter hung in there for seven and two thirds and still only three runs against. It's not like it was a bad start. In fact, it was a quality start. Just it wasn't quite good enough. On the flip side, Seth Simmons, the former high point rocker, he goes out and dominates his old team. Uh, seven innings of two hit, one run ball. And when you put out a stat line that's, you know, seven innings, two hits, one earned run, two walks, and nine strikeouts, it's just, 
you're not going to beat that. That's having your ace stuff, and it was a bit too much to overcome. So, unfortunately there, that's that's how it goes for high point. Uh, you can also kind of shift and take a look at the batting. Really only two guys stepped up when you look at the at the box scores. Uh, the two guys, really, Quincy Lattimore, which we knew, we know rather what Lattimore is. He's a very good ball player, an OPS of over 1,500, 1.538. So a very solid job by him getting on base and driving in runs, being a productive player. Schroeder was the other guy, nearly a 700 OPS. So he was he was doing his job trying to get on base, but even still, it's just really two guys. And those were the only two guys that were in the lineup that was batting that were batting over 200. When your leadoff man is batting under 100, batting 83, your next guy up's batting is 04, he's batting uh, 0, then your three-hole hitter's batting 91, then you get to your two big hitters, but then you go 154, 0, 100, 0, it's not going to work. I mean, you need more out of Landorf, you need more out of Alfonso, you need more out of Gomez, you need more out of Mitchell and Cardulo, you need more out of that lineup. When you're not bringing in runs across, you're really putting your pitchers in a tough spot. And then when you look at the flip side of things and you look at Long Island, you see them, they only have a handful of guys that are not batting well. I mean, of course, they have their one spot. Once you get past the four hitter, the five through eight hole all had 200 hitters in there. But their on-base percentages, by and large, were in the 600. So it wasn't like they weren't getting on base. They were drawing walks or, or finding other ways to get on base. So, well, yeah, you'd want to see more out of David Washington, who was a guy where you said, look at him, he's going to be a guy to do something. And uh, Darby Myers, as well as uh, Romero, these are all guys that need to do a little bit more. The rest of the guys kind of bailed them out, especially those one through four hitters. Frias, Lapandosi, Lou Ford, the Angels Wonder, and LJ Mazzilli. They all were batting above 300. Uh, in Mazzilli and Lapandosi's cases, their OPS was over 1,000. When you have one guy that's batting 500 and another guy that's batting 385 and 364 and 333, that top half of the order is going to bail you out an awful lot. And we saw that happen in game three. We saw that happen in games one and two as well. So overall, you just see the offense was dominating. When you're the high point pitching staff, you can only be held responsible for so much. When you don't have run support, you can't do everything. And really, I think that's where this kind of comes down to. Because pitching-wise, they're fairly even. And, you know, an 8-7 game that says numbers about each of uh, each of the pens, and I believe it's 8-1 in favor of Long Island, obviously, and then 3-2. For the most part, you see two pitching staffs that were fairly evenly matched. So you can't really say, oh, the high point staff let them down. I look more to the offense just kind of failed. On the high point end, you can't have, you can't have one guy batting 300 or better in an I man lineup. It's just not going to work. So I kind of looked at that. But at the same time, though, uh, congrats to Long Island for moving on to their fourth straight championship series. First team in the Atlantic League history to do that. They're kind of turning into the Quebec of the Atlantic League, as it would appear. Congrats to them. That's a huge mark. They proved they were the best team in the league. They went over their what we had them projected at, which was about 75.5 wins. They went well over that, hitting about 84, if I'm correct, on that number. So all in all, a very good job by Long Island. They've, they've been a force all year, and they're looking to continue that with uh, their next series here. And the flip side of that, though, uh, still congratulations to High Point.
you did a lot more than we thought you were going to do. You did a lot more than some of the other guys that follow the Atlantic League do. We all kind of generally were thinking, yeah, you're going to be towards the bottom of the standings. You're certainly going to finish last in the Liberty Division. You're not going to really make a lot of noise. I think I may have been the most positive about it when I said, yeah, they'll have a good hot start to the year. They'll probably be, you know, like 10 and 5 in their first 15. From there, it's going to be kind of downhill. They're not really going to do much. I mean, we had you only pegged at around 45 wins, so it's not like uh, we're expecting to burn the world down here. But all in all, you proved a lot of us wrong this year, and that's something to be very proud of. Uh, Jamie Keith, Billy Horn, Frank Viola, all you guys did a tremendous job molding this group of guys for an expansion team with guys playing together for the first time. There is no familiarity with the organization. Young, You guys did a tremendous job and starting to build a really great culture there. I think this is about as good of a first season as you could have expected. I think you have now a solid basis to go off of. I think you're kind of now that template that future teams are going to kind of look towards where it's possible to succeed in that first year. And it shows to me that the high point ownership and the high point front office is lockstep with building a quality organization. Obviously, from the business perspective, it's a lot different from on the field and fan experience. But at the same time, though, it seems like a very quality organization. You did very well this year. Now it's on to the sophomore year. you got to look forward now to April and May. And hopefully next year, you come out and do even better. But congrats to both teams, one on a great year and one on uh, looking to put the bow on the season. Shifting now to the Freedom Division, uh, York is down in that series 2-1 to one after the series shifted from Texas back to Pennsylvania. There is some bad blood going on uh, in games 1 and 2 at least where Mesa got hit in each game, and then he came out, and then Martinson on uh, Sugar Lane got plinked in retaliation, which, to all of that, I kind of, I understand where you're coming from there, and you knew it was going to happen, and it's the kind of thing that I feel like you, in the postseason, you kind of got to plink him. It's just kind of one of those things where if the same guy gets hit twice, or two games in a row, rather, and then he gets injured, it's... Awfully, it awfully seems like you, they were trying to hit him. It's very odd to see that happen. And I understand then why you go, well, if you're going to hit our guy, then we got to hit your guy. And then bench is clearing. It's a kind of natural progression on things here. So luckily it didn't really turn into anything. And just as a back and forth here, uh, both of those games were, I want to say more competitive. Game three really wasn't much in the way of competition. So this series is very evenly matched at this point, in, at least in my mind. I kind of see this series as uh, as the one to watch. As you see, a Sugarland offense that's kind of been up and down throughout the year just kind of come alive. It seems kind of reminiscent of that High Point series where you have uh, a team like Long Island and Sugarland that you have a guy banging 308, 308. 200, 333, 0, which is very concerning, but, you know, you can kind of live with it. Then Savario, a guy we highlighted, he's banged 364, OPS over 1,000, 250 from Stanley, 300 from Martinson. Uh, Betancourt, he's also batting over 300, so you have the whole lineup, really the 1 through 9 hitter that are hitting. I mean, if you want to point Bornstein out, batting 200, Kandero, uh, who's obviously not batting well, when you only are uh, 
adding zero with an OPS under 100. That tells me there's a lot of problems. And so that Stanley banning under 300, it's a little concerning, but even still, his OPS is actually higher than Bancourt, who is batting better than him. So it's, uh, there are some areas where it's a little bit concerning, but when you still have the vast majority of your lap hitting, it's not overly concerning in my mind. On the flip side, York's just not, they're not batting well. Let's put it like this. Outside of Talvin Nash and Castillo, Man, there really is nobody jumping out here. I'm seeing a lot of guys batting zero, which off the bat is not good when you have one, two, three guys in that lineup that are batting zero. You have Trapp, who was a very solid player for you for the most part of the year. He's batting under 100. Tejada, another guy who was batting very well. He's batting 200 now. Uh, Dent, 231. That's not what you want. Sullivan, 200. Rendon, zero. Skelton, zero. Guys that need to come up, they're just not performing right now, and that is going to be a major issue there. Uh, as far as going into game three, both pens were doing well. Polino didn't have a great outing, but he's, you know, still he was doing fine. Starters were doing all right. Uh, starters doing all right kind of, that trend kind of ended in game three here. Scribner did fantastic. Uh, seven innings, five hits, one earned run, two walks, 10 Ks for a sugar line. So that end did very well, and the sugar line bullpen kept up, allowing only two hits in the two innings they played. And two strikeouts for them. So they did exactly what they were asked. However, Von Schoeman kind of ended that whole doing well thing of starters. Uh, two and a third, eight hits, six earned, two strikeouts. Not a good outing. And that kind of put you behind the eight ball to begin with. with a team that can't hit. And it just kind of got worse. Walby finished out the third. And when they brought in another reliever in uh, Quarez, two earned runs against in the inning he played, and from that point it was kind of done. Stenford, Stenford came in, uh, he allowed a run in four innings of relief work, so I mean, he did his job as about as well as you can ask, and then Carson came in and didn't allow anything in, in that ninth inning, but still, uh, I'm kind of concerned for York. They haven't really jumped out to too much offense so far. This is something that's extremely concerning to me, as if you can't manage the offense of Sugarland as a team that's built primarily around offense, you're going to be battling uphill for a large part of this season and, or in this postseason at least. And you only have one game now, and that's tonight, to try and, you know, make amends on this. So unless they do something relatively soon to, you know, get that offensive gear back going, it's not going to really work out for them in this postseason, and I'm kind of I'm getting some reservations about them now. I kind of expected Sugarland to keep playing the mediocre baseball they were playing, and it definitely seems like they've shifted gears. Guys, they need to step up, like Giansanti and Phibs have stepped up. Safario keeps at his own pace, like he has the whole season, and it's been it's been uphill for uh, York so far, and Sugarland's been just running through them. So you gotta look. Tonight, well, tonight's obviously going to tell us if we're going to see Sugarland versus Long Island, or if we're going to be seeing a game five on Sunday. Which, all things considered, I'm thinking we're going to be seeing Sugarland. Uh, they've been fairly dominant. I'm not really sure who's going tonight. Both, we don't know the starters yet on either side there. Either way, though, I'm I'm very skeptical to say that York's going to win this game. They haven't really done anything over the past two games that would lead me to believe that. Uh, if they're up, I think it's really going to come down to whoever scores four runs first. Uh, if you can get four runs and a good start out of your starter, 
I feel like the bullpens on each side are going to hold, and that's really going to be our deciding point, whoever gets to that magic number of four first. With that being said, I think we kind of covered the Atlantic League's playoffs fairly well right now. Obviously, we will be checking back in on them as the postseason goes on. Uh, kind of taking a break from the on-the-field things now. we got cleanup work that we kind of got to talk about. So the new tenant in Car Shield Field in O'Fallon, Missouri, will be a summer collegiate team. They have signed a five-year, $150,000-a-year lease. This was passed by the council, city council, that is, was passed Thursday, the 26th. Obviously, the site used to be home to the River City Rascals that were also celebrated during this council meeting. This just kind of signals that move from professional independent leagues into more summer collegiate leagues. Uh, I only kind of mention it here because I do know there are some River City fans that do listen. And in case they haven't seen already, I figure we throw that out there. Plus, it kind of tells you the trend of things where for profit margins and things like that, you're better off moving to an to a collegiate system where you may not draw in as much, but your expenses are going to be far lower. You're not paying as many people. By and large, it's total intern staff, which isn't terribly much of a deviation from uh, the current indie ball structure, but still you're not paying players. You're not paying as much staff. Everything's a lot easier to operate. And like we said, your expenses are a lot lower. So it continues that trend, which is unfortunate. Uh, also, we have the Independence League attendance numbers out here. I know we talk about attendance a lot. It's not the most exciting thing, but it is important when you look at things like this. This is going to be part of a larger discussion, but I guess I can kind of just go on about it here and just give you the facts of it. Only two independent leagues group. And it's two that you're not going to expect. One, the Pacific Association, that the league that we saw in the offseason had a decent amount of troubles with losing two teams and having an owner arrested and indicted. And then the other league would be the Frontier League. You know, the one that just lost the Rascal. So by and large, it's kind of surprising to see there are these the leagues that are growing the most. Uh, largest drops in attendance came from the uh, Texas Air Hogs, American Association. They had about a quarter of a percent drop. They lost 430 fans on average to go to only 1,239 fans a game. For perspective, that is less than Sussex County, the Miners draw with a higher talent pool there. Uh, New Britain also dropped off fairly large, 0.22%, 600-person drop, as they, they are averaging just over 2,000 fans a game. And then also in the Pacific Association, a 0.37% drop, lost 60 fans, 99 total fans on average per game for the Napa. It certainly is a telling trend, too, that you have all these teams that are kind of dropping off, but yet you have some teams that rose up, like uh, Juliet in the Frontier League. They gained 700 people. That kind of offsets your loss in Texas there. They saw an over a third of a percent jump. They went up to over 2,500 a game. Uh, Chicago and the American Association, they also jumped up as well. They went to about a quarter of a percent jump. They added 650 fans a game. They're at just over 3,600 fans per game. It was a great, great jump for both of those teams, and now they are showing that they are stronger than we once thought. Chicago being a fairly new team, they're finding ways to draw people in. It's, it's looking like a very well-ran organization there. As far as local teams go, we also have those attendance numbers uh, finishing 1st, 4th, and 5th, respectively, in the Can-Am League, Rockland, New Jersey, and Sussex. Rockland drew, on average, 2,583 fans per game. 
that was in 48 games. That is uh, about a 170% drop-off from last year. So they drop off, still very high attendance for them. In 44 games, though, the Jackals managed to draw 1,742 fans per game, up 35 from last year. And Rockland saw 100, or not Rockland, Sussex County saw a 125-fan jump to 1,688 in 43 games. So, by and large, each of these teams were drawing very well. Uh, most of them draw, well, all of them drew over uh, 700,000, or 70,000 fans in good year for the Can-Am League on a whole there in the tri-state area. As far as Atlantic League teams, uh, Somerset Long Island finished 1 and 2, respectively, 344,000 to 328,000 fans in 69 and 70 games. On average, that would be 5,385 fans, up on average of 275 fans for Somerset. We also saw Long Island average 4,973 fans, an average, an average gain of 55 fans per game from last year. So, by and large, a good year in attendance for the tri-state teams. Uh, we'll probably talk about this more next week and have more of a discussion, because this is really a discussion piece, so... We'll kind of move on now to the new teams and the Can-Am League before getting out of here. All right, so the Henderson Who. They will be joining the Western Association of Professional Baseball, the new league that kicks off in 2020, and they will take the field in that inaugural season. They will play at Morse Field on the campus of the College of Southern Nevada, and the team will be owned by Nick Spiritus. He is a businessman and architect from the great state of Minnesota. Kind of looking at Henderson, Nevada on a whole, though, it's a fairly large city. It has over 300,000 residents. It saw a major population boost starting in the 80s and then just kept jumping every decade from there. So it does seem like it has a lot of potential there. It's about 30 minutes outside Nevada, or outside of uh, Las Vegas, though, which does raise some concern when your average temperature during the season is 85 and higher, and at times in July, the average temperature is like 101 as a high. Uh, that's an extremely concerning thing to me. When you have these outrageous highs, you're not playing in the afternoon just outright because you'll have people passing out from heat stroke, and you're going to be even hard-pressed at like 7 o'clock when the sun starts going down. That is a concerning thing to me there, that heat. Stadium also isn't the best, but at the same time, it's a brand new league. You can't really have these high, lofty expectations, and at least in 2020, of uh, starting a Atlantic League-type league, unless you have uh, a lot of large money investors, and even then, that doesn't necessarily work. I kind of put this as somewhere in between the Pacific Association and the Can-Am League, as far as quality goes, judging off the campus they picked. However, it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing. It seems like they're going to be mainly targeting kind of grandparents going to see this game, these games. Uh, there's not really too much else we know about the Henderson Who, but it is an extremely, extremely interesting team. There's a lot of ways this can go, and I'm going to be very interested in continuing to watch them. Uh, this is one of those teams where I feel, or one of these areas where there's a lot of potential here, because this market can grow tremendously. However, at the same time, there's a very, very real chance that this just doesn't get off the ground due to some other factors here. But uh, by and large, so I, think I do like the market. I do like the selection here. And I think it does tell us an awful lot about where the Western Association is looking to put teams. They're looking to put teams in high population density areas with the average grade stadiums. Seems they're, say, on the level of your local community college, which is 
essentially what this is. And by and large, they just seem to be wanting to get people and get the brand out there and get people into the ballpark and worry about everything else later, which is a strategy. This may not be the strategy I would pick. I'd be a little bit concerned about that particular angle there because I'd be more concerned about leaving that positive experience and the stadium experience. I mean, looking at the thing, would I go to one of these games? Possibly. Uh, given what's in the area, if I didn't want to drive into Las Vegas to see like a, uh, I think they're called the Aviators now, the AAA team out there, I would probably be more apt to just drive the 30 minutes though, and I think that's what they're going to have to really contend against here. So be interesting to see how this unfolds and where these other teams are, but We'll have more on that as more comes out on it. Obviously, we're in the end of 2019 now, so we're going to have to kind of know in the next couple months what's going to happen with them. So that's about all we got on the outside of the Can-Am League talk. So let's jump right into this Can-Am League talk real quick before we get out of here. So the main expansion, we have more information on that from that business meeting from last week. Uh, we do know that the field condition is very good, uh, very much up to that the standard that the Can-Am League is trying to get, and that the end goal is to be an eight-team league. As least of as of right now, they want eight teams in this league, so we do. You gotta expect there's going to be another city popping up fairly soon. When and where that's still yet to be determined. I I'm a big fan of Woodbridge. I'm Virginia that is where the Potomac Nationals play. I'm a big fan of somewhere in Connecticut. I'm a big fan of Nashua. I think those are really areas you got to target. However, I think a Canadian team would make an awful lot of sense because then you could have your American and Canadian divisions. Uh, I feel like it got to be in kind of Nova Scotia, PEI, that kind of general area. I think Quebec's a little tapped at the moment. I think I'd want to wait to see if another market could develop there. But in any case, focusing back on Maine, the two ownership groups that are, well, there's really not even two. There's one is from Japan that is interested in buying this team and putting it there in Maine. But the league wants more of a local ownership group, which after the debacle in Ottawa, which we'll update in just a minute, I don't blame them. You want that local group there. You want that base right there. And by and large, if you don't have that, you're not really setting yourself up for success in the long term. Uh, as for the meeting itself, there were 35 people in attendance at this meet and greet. There will be another meet and greet as well before the decision is made. However, we will know it will be made by the end of the month for scheduling reasons. So by the end of October, we will know one way or the other whether Maine is going to be in there. However, we're still in the early stages here. And this bid can roll over into 2021. So for the 2021 season, Maine can be accepted. And I think that's a lot more likely now that Maine will be added there. However, again, this depends an awful lot on what Ottawa does and what Rockland does both of which we're going to go to right now. Uh, first, starting with Ottawa to update that situation. We have, we know the two major groups now that are looking into leasing the stadium. One of these groups we have talked about before, OSEG, back in episode one. Uh, they had launched a strategic partnership with Ottawa in the past, and now they're looking to just kind of take control of the team. Uh, Ottawa Sports Entertainment Group does own the Fury FC, Ottawa Red Blocks, and the Ottawa 71s. Uh, all three major teams in Ottawa. They also are going to partner with Reagan Katz, the COO of the Winnipeg Golden Eyes. So you do have that independent league experience. Uh, Katz is, has managed to make 
or Gold Eyes, rather, one of those premier American Association teams. Uh, the Winnipeg goes back a very long ways. It goes back even into the 90s. This team has had a lot of history and has had a lot of success in Winnipeg. So you have a Canadian businessman that knows independent league baseball, that has experience in this, that knows the kind of terrain. I really do think that this group is the one I want to see kind of take control of things as you have that mix of experience and you have that mix of uh, backing on it. Obviously, they need a lease. That much goes without saying. Without a lease, there is no deal. There is no team without a lease. So I'd like to see that be the group that kind of takes the lead on this. I think they have the bank and they have the experience that will be necessary to make the champions stay in Ottawa for a long period of time. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, people that are proponents of just getting rid of the stadium altogether in Ottawa. So you're going to need that that nice mix that I think that group's going to bring, as opposed to this other group that is three businessmen, Robert uh, Aboud, Aboud, I believe it is, uh, Robert Lavoie, and Fred Sagmini. Uh, all three are just local business owners in Ottawa. They want to take control of the team and kind of step up and do it. You know, with these three, it seems more like a couple of wealthier guys that all got drunk and said, let's buy a baseball team. That seems what more this is. It seems more like a couple of buys think this is going to be fun, and I think that's going to kind of fall apart. Wally Abood, he owns uh, the financial planning group Wealth Strategies, and so I imagine he has a little bit of a reserve. I think OSEG is, is the far better option here. Really, the major issue here is debt. What's going to happen with this near half a million Canadian dollar debt? Uh, you got $400,000 to kind of figure out, and you need to figure it out soon. <laughs> That's what it breaks down to. If you don't figure it out, you're screwed. Obviously, though, the mayor is a lot more hopeful now that uh, you actually have real groups. They're going to start negotiating, and obviously, likewise, they have essentially until the end of the month now as we kind of get down to Miles Wolf's deadline of, you know, end of the month, that was meant in September, I think he's going to be a little bit more willing to extend to October if we have this good progress like we're seeing. Obviously, though, the Can-Am League needs to know by the end of October, so that way they can make their plans accordingly. On the flip side, though, Rockland, while they are in the league for 2020, they're locked in for certain. Everything else going forward is not as that certain as on their fan survey that was put out on the 24th. On their fan survey that was put out on the 24th, there was a question asking, how Rockland's status in the Can-Am League affects your attendance. So, if they were to move to the Frontier League, Atlantic League, or Affiliated Ball, would you attend more or less games? I don't know why Frontier is there. Outside of there, the closest non-Atlantic League, Independent League, that makes sense there. They're obviously not going down to the uh, Empire League, but I see the Frontier League almost like a step down in this case, where... It just doesn't seem like the talent level is the same, although it's fairly similar. It's kind of like an American association compared to a uh, Atlantic League, where which league you think is better mainly depends on which league you see more of. And for me there, that would be the Can-Am League. Um, with that being said, though, um, moving to that league does seem a bit odd. I think the Atlantic League is where they want to be and where it's going to wind up being. People saying that they want to be affiliated. I don't see the Yankees wanting them. I don't see the Mets wanting them kind of kills that right in the crib. So I think the Atlantic League is eventually going to happen. I think that uh, this is going to be something we're going to have to watch and that we know they want to get out. I think it's a 2021-2022 departure. 
I think an awful lot of when Rockland's leaving depends on how much the Atlantic League wants to add another two teams. Uh, obviously, Gastonia is going to happen. We're going to, I almost forgot to mention Gastonia as well. They held their Fuse meet, committee meeting. There's going to be another, I believe, two or three meetings such as this, where basically they show the renderings from the architect, kind of walk the plane uh, there. We'll talk more in detail about that in just a second, but in the short term, just ramping up on Rockland, I think when Gastonia goes in in 2021, which seems all but certain now, it just seems like a matter of getting the financing of the stadium underway and then building the thing, which shouldn't take too, too long. It should take about a year to build it, so I imagine uh, come the spring of 2021, there will be a professional baseball team in there. And if they want to go in even still and add Rockland there, I think what will, will end up happening is one way or the other. You move Rockland right into that uh, Liberty Division. You move Gaston, or you move Hansley, like Rockland into Liberty makes a lot more sense to Rockland into Freedom, but I think Rockland gets stuck in the Freedom Division because you want the Gastonia high point rivalry. You have a nice even 10-team league, and you can keep your eye out for, say, a Pawtucket or an Atlantic City, which we do know they are looking at for the Atlantic League. I think that's really going to heavily affect that. I think this is also part of the reason why they're looking to move to eight teams in the Can-Am League, as you have Rockland that's on shaky ground, on whether that's in the middle of an earthquake at the moment. You go up to eight, if you lose them, you're back to your original six. And I think that's the reasoning behind Maine. I think adding like a Wilmington, North Carolina, like we were speculating last week, or a Virginia team makes a lot of sense. I understand they're more of a uh, Northeast Corridor League in the Can-Am, but I think expanding down the coast makes an awful lot of sense. Getting that kind of, I guess, third division makes sense uh, of putting it where you have that southern contingent. I think that makes a lot of sense there. But uh, that's speculation. That's kind of off-season talk when all the baseball is done there. Uh, kind of talking Gastonia real quick. Uh, like I was saying with the Fuse meeting and all that, uh, the main concern that I was kind of getting from from the residency was concerned about parking mainly. They were also concerned about traffic flow. And the final thing was really the how this is going to get financed, which all of three are legitimate concerns. Parking around the stadium is going to need to be figured out. I don't necessarily believe the traffic is going to be too much of a problem as they have a five-lane highway on one side and an interstate on the other. So getting in and out of Gastonia is not going to be that much of a problem. Likewise, I don't see there being much traffic. Uh, a lot of that traffic could be alleviated with better public transportation or by encouraging people to ride bikes or walk around the place. That is going to be a center point and was featured in the presentation. We'll link the uh, all the information that we have in the show notes, but you're going to make that kind of open walking space a center point in this uh, facility. Likewise, though, with the financing, I think that is the most legitimate question. Public financing in stadiums really never works out for the actual stadium, or for the city, rather, itself. And normally you wind up having a stadium that costs more than it's worth. With that being put out there, though, I still think this is a good idea to kind of revitalize this whole area kind of make you contend with Charlotte. You want to get out of that major city shadow and start to draw for yourself. You need to put something that's going to draw there. And that seems to be this ballpark. I think a lot of this can be just eased with having a little bit more funding come in to supplement the public funding that's going to be used, figuring out like a parking garage solution. 
there's a whole lot of information in this thing, but it basically boils down to them wanting to take another property that's across the street, turn that into either shops or parking or something else there that can be used in this whole fused district, taking the current lot where they have it, building the ballpark there, having a lot open space, three major stadiums as comparables. Uh, the Jimmy John's Field up in Michigan, they were using that one, the Hartford Yard Goat Stadium in Hartford, and then the one in, Ho uh, I believe it was Holy Springs or Hot Springs, North Carolina. They were using those three, three stadiums as we're going to as uh, incorporating parts of each of those into it. Uh, on our Instagrams, we have uh, renderings of these designs. So you can take a look at them there, but by and large, I don't really anticipate much of an issue with this. I think it's still full steam ahead by everyone on the city council, everyone in the Atlantic League, all the developers. It just seems like there is a little bit of public resistance to this move, and that is something that's going to need to be watched kind of going forward. And with that being said, uh, I think that's kind of where we're going to end for today. We're at about 40 minutes or so right now, and doing solo shows is very difficult and not terribly fun to do. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. If you liked us, you can follow us on Instagram at IndieBallReport, Twitter at IndieBallPod, and on most podcatchers. So your Apple podcast, your TuneIn, your Stitcher, your Spotify, uh, everything that's not Google Play, basically, we're on that. So goes to follow there. Um, you can also check us out on our website where all our videos, articles, polls. I want to remind everybody that the polling is open for another week on the Cam League voting. So go take a look at that stuff too. Now on IndieMallReport.com, swing over there. You can listen to all the podcasts and everything is located on that site. So take a look at it over there. And we have nothing else left to add. We'll end this show as we end all of them. Don't forget to play ball.